It is a good morning. We've got a lot to celebrate today here uh, this morning, and something happened this evening too that'll be a little bit of fun. Um, glad you're here with us this morning. When, when you say, or you hear someone say, uh, why they don't read the Bible, okay? You usually hear one of, of really just a few reasons, and, and it might sound like this. I don't read the Bible because it confuses me, or I don't understand it, or I don't read my Bible because it's not a reliable source, okay? And maybe you've heard that, and we talked about that last week, and you can catch that online or on our website. You might hear um, maybe that it just doesn't translate. Like, I read the Bible, and it just doesn't translate to modern issues or modern times, and you hear a host of other things, all right? We're in this series uh, for the next few weeks because what we want to do is, is attempt to disarm some of those excuses. What we want to do is disarm some of those reasons, all right? It does translate to modern times. It is reliable. It's readable, and it has everything to do with your life. And one of the reasons why we don't read it, and honestly, uh, maybe many of us is, we just don't know where to start. And so one of the things we're doing at the end of this month is a workshop called How to Read Your Bible. And this isn't just for people who are new to church or new to faith, or maybe you just never picked up a Bible. It's for all of us, all right, anywhere on the spectrum of faith. It's how to read your Bible, how to pick it up, how to get to know it, get into God's Word. It's happening in two locations. We're doing it at Coleraine on February 21st. We're doing it here at Ross on February 23rd, and you can sign up online. You can go to either of them. It's the same thing, all right? But it's going to be a good time. You're going to want to make sure that you do that, all right, because it's going to equip you for what you need to know about God's Word. Now, one of the reasons why uh, we say that the, we don't read our Bible, it could be one of the reasons, is we just say simply that it just, it's too challenging, right? It challenges me, all right? It says some hard things, and it does, the Bible says things that maybe I don't want to hear. It says things that maybe I don't want to believe. It says things that maybe don't align with my life, and that's true. All right, so that makes it challenging. And generally when you say, you and I use the word challenging, generally when we say something is challenging, it's usually not something that is a welcomed thing in our life. So if I'm going to admit to you that math is challenging for me, and I've said that to you lots of times, all right, if that, then I'm telling you that math makes me nervous, all right? I'm not good at it. When I was in school and it was time for a math test, like my hands would get all sweaty and I would just start, my heart would race and I'd start panicking, all right, because math was too challenging. All right. People say that yoga can be challenging. Anybody do yoga in here? I tried it for the first time the other day. All right. Um, in my living room, of course, in a safe place. Of course, the kids made fun of us. But, um, but it's challenging, right? You're contorting your body. You're bending. You're stretching. And not only that, but you have to hold that position. My head's upside down for a lot of it. Like yoga is challenging for me. All right. Um, we talk about uh, another challenge um, that you've, you're sick and tired of hearing about. That's like the supply chain issue. We say the supply chain issue in this country is a challenge, and it is, all right? It's, it's an unwelcomed thing. It's not a good thing. And for the most part, I think if you were, you, you and I would have to admit that, that for the most part, we avoid challenges, okay? We avoid things, especially when they mess with things that we don't want to have challenged, Right? If you don't want it challenged, if you feel more comfortable, then you're going to avoid things that challenge you. So here's our big idea for today, and this is it. God challenges us to live with his purpose in mind. God challenges us, so we're going we're gonna to flip a little bit on the word challenge. God challenges us to live with his purpose in mind. 
Now, generally speaking, I'm living with my purposes in mind, and so are you. So is everyone you know. Uh, you're living with your purposes in mind. See, my purposes are usually challenge averse, okay? I avoid challenge, so I don't do yoga, right? I just don't. I hate math, so I avoid math. There's always somebody in the room that's willing to figure out the math problem faster than you are, all right? So just embrace that, and it's a good thing. You can even get out your calculator, pretend like you're getting ready to, and you know you have no intention of trying to figure that problem out, all right? So it's good. So I avoid math, all right? When, when the news comes on, they start talking about supply chain, I change the station, all right? Because I am challenge averse, all right? We are creatures who avoid being challenged, especially when it challenges our comforts or our beliefs or our way of life. So, I may not read my Bible. You may not read the Bible because it pushes against your comforts. It can make you feel uh, guilty. It rubs against my way of thinking. And honestly, if I'm being really honest with you, oftentimes God's purposes aren't my purposes. So, I struggle. Sometimes I just don't read my Bible. Because the truth is, the Bible is a challenging encounter. When you open God's word, it's an encounter that will challenge you. There's no question about that. But what I want to be careful with today, and really what I want to encourage you in, and I don't want you to miss this. I don't want anybody in the room to miss this. If you're watching online today, I don't want you to miss this, and so you, you need to lean into this, okay? You may be misinterpreting the challenge. The Bible challenges everyone, but you may be misreading what the challenge is. And I pray that after today, you're going to have a different definition for that. So it's been said that the Bible challenges those who are comfortable, and it comforts those who are challenged. We're going to be in the book of Matthew today, and, and I'm going to show you just a couple of quick, we're going to move really fast, just some, some key things in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. So if you have your Bible or you have the Bible app, I would encourage you to pull, pull that, open that up or pull that up. Uh, we have Bibles at the hub out here for you, so right in the middle of the lobby out here. If you don't have a Bible, we have free ones we want to give to you, so make sure you, you go grab one of those on your way out. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. What Matthew is doing, okay, Matthew was a follower of Jesus. He walked with him. He knew him. And he sat down to write a narrative, a biography of Jesus's life. And one of Matthew's purposes, and you get it through the context of his telling Jesus's life story, is that Matthew wants to prove to his readers then as and now, all right, that Jesus is actually God in human flesh, he wants to prove it. He's, it's a proof narrative, all right? He's going to prove that Jesus is God in human flesh. And so we're going to look at a couple of things that happen. Here in Matthew chapter 8, I'm going to start there. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to reference it for you. But I want you to go home and pour through chapter 8 and 9, okay? That's going to be a challenge for you. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus heals a man with leprosy, all right? Leprosy being a, a, a skin disorder. And it's a disease that left this man ostracized from his community and his family, People were scared to death of contracting it. Those who were suffering from leprosy were sent to live in colonies with other people who had leprosy outside of their family, kicked out of the town. They were ostracized and left without community. And Jesus heals this man. 
In Matthew chapter eight, verse five, so just right after that, see, Matthew's gonna do this in succession. He's gonna build an argument, okay? He's gonna build an argument. Jesus heals a centurion's daughter, a Roman centurion. So this is one of the guys that the Jews of the day and the Jewish religious leaders specifically would say was the least deserving person to ever receive anything good from God, the Romans. And Jesus heals this man's daughter. And just a few verses later, Jesus heals two demon-possessed men. Now, these men have been kicked out of their town. They've been abandoned by their family and friends and sent to live out in the wilderness away from everyone else. And Jesus heals them. In Matthew chapter 9, all right, I mean, you could just keep going, and you're going to see that it's one after another after another. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is going to heal a man who was born paralyzed. He's been paralyzed all of his life. He's going to restore him. He's going to, take, he's going to throw his mat off, and he's going to stand up, and he's going to walk away. Miraculous. And then Jesus is going to take it a step further. He's going to claim that he has the power and the authority to forgive sin. It's a powerful, powerful moment. Matthew's been building to this. And then he says, yes, Jesus restores. I want you to see how Jesus heals. I want you to see how Jesus fixes wounded things. And then I want to show you how Jesus heals sin. Now, Matthew's laying his groundwork here. Jesus restores things. So this is critical for us, okay? This is the groundwork Matthew's been laying, all right? All the way through chapter 9 here that Jesus restores things that are broken. Jesus heals wounded things. Jesus takes what has happened in life, the way that sin in life has crushed and broken things, and he restores them to how they were always originally intended to be. He makes all things new. He makes all things better. He makes everything whole again. And only God can do that. See how Matthew's proof narrative builds to a climax here in chapter 9. Only God can do that. And Jesus does it. So what must that mean? Now, we see, we see actually see something like this happen in our culture a lot where trying to take um, something and take it and, and make it better, okay? So let me show you, and, and I'll tie it in here for you. My son was with me in the store the other day, and he's like, the new Pringles guy stinks, the new logo. <laughs> and actually, it does. So the one on the left is the original one, right? The one on the right is the updated one from just like a year or two ago, all right? So somebody sat in a boardroom and said, hey, we can make the Pringles dude look better, and they actually made it worse, all right? Right? They made it worse. All right, where's the bow tie? Why is he bald? I don't know, but that's, that's what's going on here, all right? Um, you might remember, actually, some of us would remember, okay, that in 1985, there was a product released that was thought was going to change the world. It was called New Coke. <laughs> New Coke. All right, now what critics will tell you is Coca-Cola said, we're going to make something even better. All right, we're going to make new Coke. They said it was one of the biggest flops in brand history in the United States, that people hated it. And so when they had to come back and rebrand, they added the word Coca-Cola classic because the original was better, all right? 
I was also reading um, the other day in 2008, now I don't remember this, and you may not either, because it was only lasted for 17 episodes, NBC tried to reboot Knight Rider, which is just an atrocity. And, and it was, and so 17 episodes in, they killed it, all right? They said, we just can't do this, all right? Now, that, now to be honest, like, there are plenty of examples in our culture and in our history where humans, where mankind could take the original and we could improve on it and make it better. But when it comes to your and my interaction with God's word, when it comes to our interaction with the Bible, we find ourselves sometimes in a similar situation that Coca-Cola found itself in in the 1980s. You think you can make it better. When it comes to relationships, so God's word talks about how relational interaction is all about how we serve one another. It's about self-sacrifice. And But we say, yeah, that sounds good, but if I could just manipulate this relationship over here in my life in order for that person to meet my needs as the priority of the relationship, wouldn't that be so much better? You think about racism, and, and, and God's word just, just, it was so outside of its time, including all people all time, male and female, no matter the color or the race, that everybody was created in the image of God. Everybody was loved equally, had equal value, an unheard of quality in, in, the, in the ancient world. And we say, yeah, that sounds great. And, but then when I speak about others, I find myself using terms like they or them because in some way that helps me feel elevated in my opinions or my position. What about with forgiveness? I mean, if you know anything, I mean, and, and some of us don't, but if you know anything about the Bible, you say, yeah, I mean, God is a God who forgives. Jesus is about forgiveness. But, but the Bible tells us that, that our willingness to forgive one another is tethered to our ability to accept forgiveness from God. But we say, but you know what? I'm entitled to my anger. And we withhold grace from other people, believing that we will find peace in that. What about love? I mean, if there is ever an overused and, and underdefined word in the English language, it's the word love. Now, now, God tells us in his word that, that he is love, and he defines love, and he modeled what love is through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, but we say, oh, well, we can do better. See, we will define love as a feeling or an experience that we have towards someone else. And what about what God says about sex? What about what God says about finances? You see, we can, we can encounter it, but we think we can do better. We can redefine. We can improve. And I don't know if you're about me, but when I feel like that I can do that, and I struggle with this every day, I find myself with a new Coke experience. <laughs> I thought it would feel good. I thought it would be good. I thought it could do good. I thought it would, and it just tastes like crap. So you tracking with me here? See, NBC looked at Knight Rider, okay? They looked at David Hasselhoff. I don't know why you could ever think you could do better, but they did, all right? 
And they said, you could do a lot better. They just didn't do it well. But, all right. But NBC looked at Knight Rider and they said, you know what? That was good, but we can do better. And, and, and what the commentators were saying, that they, they took the source material and, they, and, they, and they took inspiration from the source material. But NBC's problem was, what they said later is, they didn't go back to the source material as the source for everything they did for the new Knight Rider. They were inspired by the old stuff, but they didn't base it off the old stuff. And it flopped. It didn't work. And this is a challenge for us. You see, the further that you and I get from the source material, the more complicated life gets, relationships get, sex gets, finance gets, love gets. See, the Bible challenges my sense of what is comfortable and what your sense of what is right and what is best and what is true. And we read the Bible, and I think sometimes we say it challenges me because we say, well, you know what? It challenges me because I could never live up to like what that says. Like, I can't live my life like that. That's too much. Or we say, you know what? It just, you know, really what the Bible is, it's just about making me feel guilty that, I, that all these things that I'm doing that are wrong, I should stop doing them, I should do these things instead, and it just kind of elicits this guilt, right? Or he says there's, there's too many rules, or there's, there are more modern ways of thinking and dealing with people and issues in our culture today. It just, just challenges. It's too challenging. And to think about it this way, I want to say this, all right? To think that the challenges that you read, that I read from God's Word today, are only for our modern culture, Okay, they're only for today. Okay, is at minimum arrogant, and at, at worst, it's it's ethnocentric. It is that our culture today is far above and far more enlightened than any other culture. Because the words that Jesus has used, the words that Jesus uses, and and what he taught us were just as challenging and countercultural and difficult to grasp then as they are now. Jesus pressed on every held belief and culture. He pushed, he pushed hard. He often offended people. He, he challenged conventional wisdom. He challenged what religion should look like. He challenged assumptions and comfort levels about class, about women, about the poor. He, he challenged all of it. His words and actions offended it, pushed people to transform their minds from what they thought was true and better. And he offered them a different kind of challenge. One that they didn't see coming and one that they didn't quite understand at first. See, God challenges me to live with his purposes in mind. And Jesus's words and life offered a new kind of challenge. And so let me paint this picture for you. This is what it looked like. Jesus's challenge said he had a purpose to restore things. So this was a challenge. I'm going to restore broken things. And so Jesus challenged community. He pushed hard on what community, like, you know, community looks like, restoring it to the way that it should be, showing us a restored community that operates in, in respect 
and, and, and love and self-sacrifice? Do you know that in a community, when everyone is sacrificing their wants for the wants of someone else, it's like this circle. Everybody ends up getting what they really need because everyone's sacrificing for the other person. It's beautiful. And Jesus says, let me restore community and show you what it really should look like, what God has already always intended it to look like. Jesus gave a new challenge. He's going to challenge relationships. He's going to challenge relationships saying, I'm going to reclaim. He reclaimed them. I'm going to reclaim relationships in the way that they always should have operated. That you walk into that marriage, that you walk into that, that dating situation, that you walk into that friendship, that you walk into the, your coworkers in the lunchroom, and you have in mind for them what is best for them. And you love and you serve and you, and you care for them for what's best for them. And you love in your relationships that way. And Jesus says, I will reclaim. I will challenge everything you've seen about relationships in your culture. Jesus challenged worship. This is what all the religious people thought it looked like. This is what people of other religions thought it looked like. And Jesus says, let me just kind of just reclaim worship. Let me just challenge you there. Worship's not about focusing, and this this is a problem that many of us hold on to. It's not about religious activity. It's not about just the, just the way that you check boxes off to say that I've done my religious duties for the day or for the week or for the year. It's not an obligation. It's an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. Like, that's worship. It's an intimate, loving, close relationship with our Heavenly Father. Jesus said, I'm going to claim, I'm going to claim worship. I'm going to reclaim it. He challenged He challenged that wedge that would just jammed in between my life and a relationship with God. And sin separated me from that. And Jesus said, I'm going to challenge that too. I'm going to show you what connectivity with the Father really looks like. I'm going to die so that it can be restored. See, Jesus restores and redirects your mind and mine to what God had originally intended it to be the way that everything was supposed to operate before sin eroded its beauty, Jesus promises to restore. And the better, more fulfilled version of you is a you restored to your heavenly father. So Matthew shares something else in this narrative. So he's building this up. So I, 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 that was a long way of showing you how Jesus is building, that Matthew is building to a point here. In verses 19 and 13, Matthew's actually going to do something that's kind of fun to watch. He tells you his story, but he tells it from like a third person. You know, you know anybody who refers to themselves in the third person? I mean, so this is what Matthew's doing. He's telling you the story of Jesus' life, and now he's telling you how he gets introduced to Jesus. So in verse 9 through 13, all right, this is what happens. Sorry, and this is Matthew chapter 9. I don't even know that I said that. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, that is the Jewish religious leaders, 
saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In some translations of your Bible, the Pharisees asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Like the lowest. Now, Jesus approached Matthew in a tax collector's booth. That was his occupation. And unfortunately for Matthew, um, he had chosen an occupation which aligned itself with the corruption and oppressive Roman government that stole from the Jewish people, overtaxed them, cheated them. And so Matthew was an enemy to his own people, and they hated him for it. So when Jesus, a Jewish religious teacher, a rabbi, aligns himself with such a notorious sinner, it caused some challenges. From Matthew's perspective, it was, could I could I actually leave my lucrative money-making business and follow this homeless rabbi? Should I do it? Can I afford to? Is it worth it? So for Matthew to say, should I align myself with someone so controversial and unconventional? See, Matthew's whole world was being challenged here. Now for the people, Matthew also would have to say, if Jesus finds out what I'm really like, he wouldn't be inviting himself over to my house. Would he? And then you have the religious leaders who are looking from the outside in. And they said, how could Jesus, how could Jesus support and be friends with and socialize with people who are so undeserving and sinful? See, everybody's entire way of thinking was being challenged. And you've asked the same questions as you've considered what the Bible says. If you've ever sat down to start to read, maybe you've been here or in a different experience where you've heard others read portions of it, and you've asked yourself, how could that be? Or why would he say that? Or what does that actually mean for me today? Or is it worth it? Is this worth it? Am I worth it? What do I do with Jesus? You have the same questions that they had 2,000 years ago. What's going on here? This upsets everything. Look at verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said to the religious leaders, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Healthy people don't need a doctor. That was Jesus' point. Now, often we feel a sense of security, don't we? And we all do, and we should in some sense, right? Um, when we are healthy, right? I mean, it's a blessing to have your health. People ask how your family's doing, and one of the things that, especially maybe, maybe this is just kind of a, um, since like kind of the, the COVID thing has been, been a thing for two years, I don't know if we said this beforehand, but if I come to you and say, so how's your family doing? A common response is, well, everybody's healthy, right? I just said that to somebody the other day. I had already written this, and I said it. I'm like, dang, like that's the measuring rod, 
You know, like that's the measuring rod. Is well, everybody's healthy. Like that's a pretty low bar, but it's fine. It's a good thing. All right, it's a good thing. Health is good. All right, and we say that we say, well, and you, you know, there's a common phrase like, well, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Like, well, I, I think there's a few things you might have, but I, but I get it. I get it. If you don't have your health, what have you got? You've got a lot. But health is important, and we value it, and it gives us a sense of of security, because many of us know what it's like not to have it. So, so people who aren't challenged by health problems. Um, Either, either mental or, or emotional or physical or spiritual, one, are deluded, okay, because we're all challenged in some way with, with health problems. But two, we have a false sense of security, unaware of the true health problems that you have. But sick people, I'm talking about people who know they're sick, spiritually sick, who understand their challenges, who understand their brokenness, who understand that their lives are lacking something. People understand that their lives are a mess. People understand that their religion has left them unfulfilled. (laughs) Okay. Those are the people that get Jesus' attention. They are the people who are open to receiving grace. They're sick and they know it. And that's when their minds are opened to be restored. See, Jesus didn't say this, okay? Jesus say sinners sinners don't need a lawyer. And Jesus didn't say sinners don't need a lawyer to remind them of the rules or to point out guilt. Like sinners don't need a coach to, to yell and scream and cram a message down their throat. Sinners don't need a sage who will offer them wise advice for a living. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus said sinners need a doctor for healing and to fix things. And so you and I think that the Bible challenges us because it makes us uncomfortable or it makes us feel guilty or it doesn't align with the way that we think about things. But you notice something, that Jesus never required anybody to behave a certain way before he healed them. He just healed them. He simply showed up and said that God's purposes were were legitimate and they were possible in your life. That healing was possible and through him. See, the Bible challenges you and me, not because it makes me uncomfortable. I mean, there is that. But the real challenge from God's word is it challenges you because you're broken. And you know it. And you know it. And you need healing. And you're not operating right. Things aren't going in your life the way that you know in your heart that they could and should. You have a Father in heaven who loves you. I mean, He loves you deeply. And He's calling you today to be restored. So as we close, I want to offer um, a challenge to you. 
read the Bible. Start reading the Bible. Start in the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Download the YouVersion Bible app. Go out and grab a Bible from the hub and just start reading the book of Matthew. And find places as you read, and you will, okay, that you have not offered over to God and asked him to restore. And start to offer those things over to him. Keep in mind, (laughs) the best restorative work that God is going to do is going to be in you and in your heart. Embrace that challenge and share it with someone. Find someone in your life and say, I am reading this thing, it's blowing my mind, and I'm just giving this thing, whatever, this addiction or this problem or this stress over to God, and, and he's messing with it. Share it with someone. Tell someone about it. But start. We're going to celebrate baptisms today. But today and in the next hour, we're going to celebrate a few more. There is almost, in my opinion, no more beautiful representation of the grace of God than the waters of baptism. It is God's grace that washes over us and cleans us and restores us back to our Heavenly Father. And the waters of baptism is just this beautiful reminder of the things that God has done for us. But I will tell you this, if you have never made the decision as a person of faith to just spiritually admit, I am broken, I need fixed, I don't know how. And if you have never turned that over to God and asked for him to do it, you can, you can surrender to baptism today and be reborn today. Now, there are some people who we knew ahead of time were going to do this, but that does not mean that you can't do it today, that you need to do it today, that maybe your heavenly father is calling on you. Let's fix our sin problem. Let's fix this, and then we can get to work on your heart. And if that's you, if that's, a, if that's a challenge that you can meet today, I would encourage you, you could just meet someone over here by the back corner in this, in this corner exit door right over here. And Chris is heading that way. All right, you can go back over there and we'll meet you and we will celebrate something today. God challenges me to live with his purposes in mind. The real challenge the reason why I think a lot of us are going to pick this up and see it through a new lens today, all right? The real challenge isn't, from Jesus, isn't what you have to give up. It's what you have to give over to be restored. Amen? Let's pray. Father, God, I worship you because you're the only one who can fix stuff. You're the only one who can fix me. May your word come alive, Father, for every man and woman in this room. The challenge of your word, Father, is that we're broken and we need healed. 
God, I worship you for doing that. I thank you for Jesus. And I trust you to do all the work that you promised to do. I love you and pray these things in the name of Jesus, your son, my brother, my savior. Amen.